Christopher Venter lives in South Africa, and he'd already done one long adventure on his Vespa scooter before this one. It was a combined adventure slash charity ride for a children's hospital, and it would end up covering 32,000 kilometers or almost 20,000 miles, taking Chris and his team of three other riders from Cape Town in South Africa all the way to Dublin, Ireland. But what Chris didn't know that morning as he rode away was that this trip would present the biggest challenge he had ever faced. All of a sudden, within two days, my sight totally disappeared. I went totally blind, nothing, black, starless night. And how he dealt with this challenge and what was happening to him would define his future. It was really hard. I felt very, very alone, very broken, and I just wanted to die. I lay there in that hospital bed wishing that I would close my eyes and it would be over. Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method, and the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio, made in the USA, and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as their top pick in a compressor shakedown. Their website, www.cyclepump.com. I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lambert. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ross. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeVell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com
a while back, I was watching a speaker that I really like named Sir Ken Robinson. If you ever get a chance, you should look him up. He was doing this talk that he calls Finding Your Element. And he was talking to a, a large group, an audience inside an auditorium in, in Los Angeles. And basically what he was saying to them was, back when he was a kid in the 50s, living in Liverpool in the UK, he could never have imagined they would end up living in LA talking to those people like he was at the moment. And he went on to ask the audience, he said, how many of you really anticipated the life that you're leading now, the life that you've led so far when you were kids? The point he went on to make was that we create and recreate our lives as we go, according to the opportunities around us and the talent we find within ourselves at the time, and of course, whether we're open to it. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you you have plans, you strive for something, and often something comes along that you couldn't have prepared for, and all of a sudden, plans change, life changes. We all know that life can throw us curveballs, some much worse than others. But how we choose to react to those curveballs, well, that's what defines our future. Chris Venter set off on a charity ride from Cape Town in South Africa to Dublin, Ireland, on a scooter. And that trip changed his life in ways he never could have prepared for. This is his story. an author, an accessibility buddy, a professional speaker, and pretty much just a crazy all-round guy. That's Chris Venter, who lives in South Africa. He is that now, but he used to be a professional chef. Yeah. (laughs) A chef, believe it or not. He's very busy. He's working a lot. A workaholic. I put myself into my career focused on that to try to make as good a life as possible. But I worked as a development and training chef. So my culinary career took me to all corners of the globe. Most of the time I worked in the Caribbean, setting up kitchens, staff training, organizing supply chain, purchasing equipment, writing curriculums for culinary schools, all that type of thing. And even though he's busy working all over the world and doing all kinds of things, he still considered his life to be adventurous. Yeah, even working as a professional chef can be quite adventurous. I I had to, having the adventurous spirit in me since... At a very young age. And on top of all this, he liked to collect scooters. He was a, you know, sort of a, a scooter collector. A vintage Vespa scooter collector and enthusiast. Right. Vespa collector and enthusiast. So why, why would you become a, a collector of Vespa scooters? Is that a big thing where you're from? Not at all. Uh, it's just a, we all have a hole that we throw our spare money into. <laughs> and luckily mine's not drugs or gambling or anything like that. 
I, I came across the first Vespa scooter and I thought, wow, this is quite a stylish little thing. And I knew absolutely nothing about it. And I bought it, uh, took it to a bike shop. And he basically said, look, he's never worked on one before. He has absolutely no idea how to get it going. And um, if I'm prepared to spend a bit of time with him and do the work myself, he will show me and we'll figure it out together. And the, absolutely fell in love with him. The, the bug bit in a big way. And uh, started buying them up, left, right, and center, wherever I could find an old one. Because in those days, you could still buy them for a pretty good price. That's no longer the case because they've become much more desirable now. Describe the Vespa scooters for, for those who don't know. Well, they started in the 50s. But the, the main scooter model that you see is called the Classic Shape. That started in the 70s. It's either a 150 or a 200cc two-stroke engine. Now, the nice thing about a two-stroke is that any idiot can fix it. It's die-hard. The, the wheel is set straight onto the engine. It's direct drive, so there's no chain or anything like that. The clutch is quite simple. There's a lot of packing space on scooters. It actually makes it, ironically, really good for long-distance traveling, although they obviously are not made for that. I, I wanted to prove that they can do that. And... Um, Anybody who can fix an outboard motor or a chainsaw is able to fix a Vespa scooter's engine. And it all runs on a cable system. So you have a gear selector arm. So your left hand handle basically twists, and that's how you rotate. It's got two cables that run to a little selector box at the back of the engine. And there's a clutch, which is quite nice. So the reason that I, I wanted to ride a Vespa scooter through Africa and around Africa is because if you ride something that's automatic, which most of these um, paper plate scooters, I call them, uh, it overheats as soon as you get into tricky terrain, as soon as you have to ride through a lot of mud or up and down and rocks and sand, it, it just overheats. It's not made for that. So with the gears, you can control that and you're, you're sure that your clutch is not going to simply burn out. It's also relatively affordable. Uh, an old Vespa, the parts are mostly made in India and sometimes in China. And, uh, yeah, you can fix it yourself. You get a front rack, a rear rack. Uh, there's a nice place between your legs. The, 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 the Italians say that they like the, the, the cowl on the scooter because their nice fancy leather shoes doesn't get dirty. But for, for me, it was a nice packing space for an extra 10 liters of fuel. And the, the tank is 10 liters, so you've got a great range. And with a, a set of um, soft side pannier bags as well as a bag on the seat, we can travel about 650 kilometers without having to fuel up. And as Chris says it, then he got this crazy idea. Yep. I wanted to try to do something, something crazy, something that no one else had ever done and no one else would ever do, do it for a good cause and at the same time create a story. Okay. So there's, there's two trips that we're going to talk about here. The first scooter trip, what was that all about? Well, the first trip I decided on, and then this, I, I wasn't sure that I was going to do it with a Vespa scooter because that only, that's where the addiction, let's call it, was born. The first trip was, I decided to travel the circumference of South Africa up to the Namibian border, across and skirting down the, the, the bottom of Botswana and, and around the Zimbabwean border and down touching Mozambique, Swaziland, basically touching the most western, northern, eastern, southern points of South Africa. And I decided that it would be a, a fundraiser and publicity stunt for a local children's hospital called the Red Cross War Memorial Children's Hospital. It's here in Cape Town. I 
had absolutely no idea what I was getting into. And once we started preparing for the trip, Vespa South Africa actually contacted us and said, we would like to sponsor you guys with a couple of our new four-stroke Vespas. And Mm. just to make sure that you don't have any issues with breakdowns or anything like that, we'll make sure that we have roadside assistance and that type of thing. So the, the, the old scooter got parked and uh, we jumped on the new scooters and of course thought, well, with Vespa behind us, we'd get much more publicity for the children's hospital. So that's why we, we chose to do it. Myself and, and another guy, we did that trip and we raised a lot of money. We raised a lot of publicity. We had an immense amount of support. It was, there was a lot of television coverage. We were on every radio station. The trip was a huge success, but when you have one adventure, you start thirsting for the, the next one. And that was Africa. So the first trip, a huge success. And now you get an idea to do the second one. What is that? Well, I decided that I'd like to travel. Originally, the idea, my folks lived in Dublin at the time. They were working in Dublin. So I decided we, we have a town called Durban here. So I thought Durban to Dublin. That sounds nice. Let's do Durban to Dublin. And then, of course, with Vespa not having a geared scooter at that time, we went to the, the Indian equivalent of the Vespa, which is an LML which is exactly the same scooter. When, when Vespa stopped manufacturing that model, LML continued and Vespa owned the LML factory for many years. So there was no difference as such. And uh, we approached LML and said, we would like to ride from Durban to Dublin. They said, that's all fine. We'll sponsor you with four scooters. There were four of us on the trip. But we think that you should again tie in with the Red Cross Children's Hospital and ride from Cape Town rather than from Durban. And Use the trip as a pediatric healthcare awareness campaign. So visit schools, children's homes, and kids' hospitals right through Africa, and then skirt through Italy and France, go to the UK, do a little spin around Ireland, and finish at Our Lady's Children's Hospital in Dublin Island, which is ironically about the same age as the Red Cross Children's Hospital, and they have many similarities, although we're a third world country and they very much aren't, are not. We just decided, okay, let's do the Red Cross Children's Hospital or the Red Cross War Memorial Children's Hospital is their full proper name to Our Lady's Children's Hospital in Dublin. But that sounds a little crazy and nobody knows exactly where that is. So we we, we just called the trip Cape Town to Dublin by scooter. And that, of course, would be the trip that ended up changing my life so drastically. What was this trip like? Did you get into, like, I mean, give us an idea of what sort of conditions you're riding in. Are you riding on paved roads? Are you getting into some dirt? Um, How difficult is it? What most people don't realize about riding in Africa, if you stick to the main roads, it's pretty much paved all the way. But when you have to turn off that main road, all that main road is bad. Then the action begins because turning off that road with a little 10 inch wheeled Vespa scooter is is a bit more of a challenge. The corrugation when you're when you've got big wheels, you can fly over the corrugation no problem. But with a Vespa, you go crawling speed, so that becomes a real challenge. The first bit of the trip from from Cape Town, we did end up driving all the, all the way. We rode along the east coast to Durban simply because we wanted to do that, and then up to Johannesburg, and we did a big activation day with the Nelson Mandela Children's Hospital. We went into Botswana. And we visited a children's home there called the Camp Hill Village and teamed up with a, a bunch of ladies who, who have this Journey of Hope program. Uh, it's a breast cancer awareness campaign. And then the action began because then we <laughs> the roads started getting bad. We were 
you know, we, 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 at one point I remember in Botswana, we rode and ahead of me, I saw an elephant riding. I was leading the group and I saw an elephant coming up across the road. So I stopped and wasn't really able to do anything except stop. And the elephant crossed the road about 50 meters ahead of us. And then all of a sudden, another two or three started coming out and the guys had stopped behind me and we, we turned the ignitions off. And then I realized that they weren't only crossing in front of us, they were crossing behind us as well, as, as I look back. And we had a trip of, uh, must have been very, very close to 70, 80 elephants basically crossed the roads and they were absolutely not interested in us. They just crossed, walked by. That same day, we had a stay at a place called Pandamatanga. And the, the directions were quite simple. Follow the road until the bush breaks. When the bush breaks, there'll be some farmlands to the left-hand side where they grow sorghum. So it's like a wheat for they use for beer. And when you see the sorghum fields, turn around, go back one kilometer, and you'll find a little jeep track. And follow that jeep track until you find a thatched house and that we'll be hosting you. That's where you'll be staying. So it was now getting to about 5 p.m. in the afternoon, and we found the jeep track eventually after finding the lands. And realized that the sand is just there's no way that these scooters are going to travel on the sand. We must have tried for about three hours. It was now starting to get dark. We drove to the sorghum fields and we ended up riding amongst the sorghum to, to get to our host. And it was great because then we slept and they made us a nice roast and everything was great. And then it started raining. And all that clay that the sorghum was growing turned to mud. So the next morning... We tried for about an hour to ride in the mud and we, you couldn't get further than three or four meters and you literally would just sink and fall over. So we had to ride back on the gravel, on, on the sand road, the, the soft sand road. And luckily the rain had kind of compacted a little bit. So what we ended up doing is have, parking two scooters and having <laughs> one guy running next to one scooter, accelerating it right, another guy pushing it from the rear. And then we'd, we'd get it 20, 30 meters, and then we'd go back and do the, the same with the other scooter, and then we'd go back and carry all the bags and get over. And what should have taken and what would have taken a car about 10 minutes took us about eight hours. Two clutches were burnt out, so we had to then sit on the side of the road for another hour and replace two clutches. It, it was crazy. So, so the road's good, but turn off the road, that's when the action begins. So do you have parts with you or are you saying replace the clutches you guys we had carried, clutches with you? Yeah. We carried uh, way too many parts actually, Jim. We, we, we even carried a uh, you know, complete barrel, a crank cylinder, everything. We, we, we didn't need all of that because the scooters are diehard. They really are as tough as nails. What we, we needed, we didn't have. Um, we used a lot of clutch plates cables, a lot of bulbs, because your bulbs, you know, the, the scooter obviously bubbles around a little bit on, on cobble roads in Italy in a village, but it's not made to drive on the type of corrugation that we had to travel on. So your bulbs burn out, they pop, and your your cables get stretched, you have to replace them. Um, the one rider, I think, clocked about 60 punctures. So that's a lot of tube repairs. Luckily, the, the wheel is a split rim wheel. So it's, it, Piaggio was actually an aircraft company in the, in the World War. And after the, the World War, they decided now the factory has been bombed, it's been destroyed, and we want to develop a cheap means of transport. So a lot of the, the tooling, the, the engineering, and the design came from aircraft engineers. So the wheel, the front wheel and the back wheel just pops off to the side. It's got a split rim. 
It has a tube, so it's quite easy. You have a spare wheel, which means it's a lot quicker and easier for us to change a wheel on the road than, than it would be with a with a big bike. But yeah, does that really make things better? No, <laughs> not at all. I was lucky. I went the entire route without having a puncture. So you mentioned that you're running with, well, obviously with, with things to repair your tires. You even mentioned that you've got, you know, clutch plates and, and cables and even a cylinder with you. What else are you running with? What, what have you got packed on your scooter? All right. So in our side bags, we had our clothing. In our bag at the back, we'd have our spares, parts, two-stroke oil, also things like that. And that was on top of a little box, a little black ammo box type of thing. On, on racks that we built. Between our legs was 10 liters of fuel. On the seat behind us, we'd have a, a little cooler bag with our daily meal, snacks, water, things like that. And then on the front rack, we'd have another um, bag with all of our camping kits, tents, stretchers, sleeping bags, mosquito nets, that type of thing, as well as a fire extinguisher, a, a tiny little fire extinguisher. In some countries in Africa, it's mandatory that you have a fire extinguisher. <laughs> So we, we, we got really small ones. They look like a flare. They're tiny. You hold them with a hand and we luckily never had to use them. So That's a lot of stuff on a scooter. That scooter clearly has to be overloaded. The scooter's 100 kilograms, just over 100 kilograms. Uh, each rider weighs 80 to 100 kilograms. And then we carried another 80 to 100 kilograms. You have to remember these scooters in India generally carry a pillion or more than three, four, five people at a time. So they, they're tough. But yes, we did damage the rear shocks and all of us, by the time we got home, had to replace our rear shocks. So it got <laughs> to a point where the, the shocks just weren't there anymore. But you know, luckily you, you, you're slow and you, you're, you're traveling at enough speed that you can just not worry about shocks. Just have a bumpy ride. We're going to take just a short break and we're going to be right back with a whole bunch more to the story. Um, Chris um, talks about getting sick and it sort of goes on from there. But first, um, we're going to talk about uh, Carrie Doherty from Motorbird Adventures. Um, She's now a a California motorcyclist safety program instructor. By the way, she speaks fluent Spanish, obviously, as well as as English. But, um, you know, Carrie took off on her own trip on her KLR 650, 10,000 miles 19 states, Baja, Mexico. I mean, she's an explorer. And now what she's doing is she's running her company, Motorbird Adventures, which takes women out to have women-only trips, you know, so you can you can be just with the girls um, on an adventure of your choice. And, and she's got some great trips coming up. She's got uh, Baja, Mexico, which is a place I would love to go. Uh, in March, um, this, uh, what, next month? Next month, I guess it is. She's got seven days in Belize. She says waterfalls, unpaved roads, ancient Mayan ruins, jungles, stunning beaches. And many of the roads are unpaved. So she's supplying dual sport motorcycles. You, you really got to drop by her website and have a look at this. Then again, in April 2018, six-day 
Baja Tour, another one. There's uh, some easy off-road riding apparently in that. They're going to the San Felipe 250 off-road race. They're going to stop at legendary Baja motorcycle points, ride jet skis, ATVs, and and basically enjoy amazing landscape. Very cool. So if you're a woman rider, this is a great opportunity for you to get out there and go out with somebody, first of all, who's a passionate rider who wants to share her special spots, um, but also with just a group of women, you know, so you can just relax and enjoy. And if you have a friend or a loved one that um, is a woman rider and uh, they may be interested, pass it along to them. The website, www.motobirdadventures.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with Carrie at Motobird Adventures, make sure you throw in there that you heard her here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's www.motobirdadventures.com. And the other one is IMS Products. Hey, have you checked out the IMS Products Facebook page? If you haven't, uh, I recommend that you do go by and like that. You get an idea of what they're into there. They are heavily into off-road racing. And they, of course, they have been since um, 1976, I think, uh, when they started out. That's And that racing pedigree is sort of part of what you get when you get IMS foot pegs, which um, is, they put into all their products, really, and they make a whole bunch of products there. And that's why they have such a huge reputation for quality parts. And you can't sell racers products that aren't top quality. Now, I can tell you from my experience with the pegs that I'm running, the IMS pegs that I have, I'm no racer, but um, I can't count how many times my pegs have seen serious abuse from being dropped in rocks and, and mud and being bashed on things that I've been riding over, including a lot of rocks. Um, I think at first I started, I was checking them to see what was going on. Now I just don't care because I know they're going to be fine. Um, I was going to say they're tough as nails, but actually I think they're a lot tougher than nails. Anyway, drop by and have a look at their full line of uh, ADV pegs that they have. They all come with the IMS lifetime warranty. They're made in the USA, top quality material, and the designs are really, really good. www.imsproducts.com. And of course, be sure to mention anytime you deal with them that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. At some point during the trip, you ended up getting sick. When I was in East Africa, in Tanzania, my health fell apart. And I didn't know what was wrong with me and I couldn't get medical attention. This is where my my real adventure actually begins. So this is a bit of a sad part of the story. I went to try to get medical help and I could not because the expat hospital was the only one that would see me. They wanted a 5,000 US dollar deposit just to see me. And I felt that was a little extreme. And I was also warned that even if they ended up prescribing me a couple of headache pills, I would not get a cent of it back. They would find reason to to use it, a bunch of tests, all sorts of things. So my options were quite limited. And I was in Dar es Salaam at this point. It was suggested to me that I'd go over to Zanzibar because Zanzibar is quite a tourism-based island. And on Zanzibar, there were a lot of expat doctors. Well, it just so happened when I got to Zanzibar, they were all on holiday. There wasn't a, a single doctor to see there. And I had become very dehydrated. And one day I just became so dizzy. I was just collapsing. I couldn't walk. I was leopard crawling around, very, very disoriented. I said, what can I do? There's, there's no way I can continue with this trip. I need to get some medical attention. I need to go home. The hotel that had sponsored us, the the manager found me lying uh, in the garden and he basically helped me to his office and 
I said, just get me to a doctor, get me. And he tried to phone around, try to get me in anywhere. Nobody could see me. So I said, here's my credit card, book me a ticket, get me to the airport. I don't really remember much more than that. I remember the doctor here in Cape Town diagnosing that I was severely dehydrated. I had bad food poisoning and I had bulhazia. He pumped me full of antibiotics and vitamins and I felt great. But it wasn't actually what the problem was. There was a, a rare a rare flesh-eating virus that had attacked parts of my body and it just wasn't diagnosed. But of course, with all the medicine, I felt fine. And it, my, the rest of the guys continued. My scooter got shipped back from Dar es Salaam. Luckily, again, we had the, the, the company that was sponsoring that side of it. And I spent about a month on the couch at home and I felt okay. I was itching. I just wanted to get back on the road and join the guys. So they're still riding. They're still going along. How long has the trip been to this point? Uh, well, it was an eight-month trip in total. And at this point, we were about three months into it, three and a half months into it when, when I fell ill. So what I did when I started feeling well again is I started contacting people in, in Europe. And eventually I got hold of the, the dealer that sold these scooters in Paris, France, and because the rest of my team had gotten stuck in Ethiopia with visa issues and delays, it gave me a chance to get to Europe and travel south to meet them when they arrived. And because they had been delayed and they'd missed out on a lot of the engagements and appointments we had in Europe with Vespa clubs, we went to the Euro Vespa rally and things like that, I got to do these things, but in reverse. So I jumped onto a lone scooter also sponsored, just the use of it was sponsored in Paris. And I traveled down south to the south coast of France and traveled across the Côte d'Azur and down Italy, all the way to Sicily and uh, just up onto the mainland. And I met the guys when they arrived by ferry from Israel. And, and funnily enough, I ended up doing more mileage than they did with my solo ride in Europe. Managed to continue and complete the trip with them as well as do a lot of extra things because two of the, the, the other two South African guys got stuck in Rome with more visa issues for the United Kingdom visa. And myself and the American guy, we got to do a ride over to the, to the East Coast and um, up to Rimini and to Sant'Arcangelo. And we met them again down in Florence a couple of weeks later. So I really was getting extra mileage. And how are you feeling the whole time as you're riding along there? You've, you've sort of, you got yourself feeling pretty good. You left home, you're back on the bike again. Are you feeling fully recovered at this point? When I flew into Paris, I was collected from the airport at about 11 p.m. And we then went out to dinner. That night I, I got to bed. It must have been about 2.30, 3 o'clock that I climbed into bed. The next morning at 9 o'clock, I was at Heritage Motors, the, the, the um, sponsor of the scooter that I was going to use, um, with the big press party and a lot of photographers, all that type of thing. By the time I got onto the scooter and left to travel to Lyon, it was well into the afternoon. And by the time I got to Lyon that night, it was about midnight. I remember lying in the, in the bed at the, the couch surfing host's place, shaking and thinking, uh-oh, here's a problem. I'm not right. But I thought, it's exhaustion. That's all that it can be. By the time we finished the trip in Dublin, I was finished. I was absolutely wrecked. I just wanted to get home. I truly believed that all I needed was a couple of weeks on the sofa, eating some candy bars and some home-cooked meals, and, and I'd be fine. 
30,000 kilometers. I did just over 30,000 kilometers in total. And um, I, yeah, got home and thought rest, but the rest didn't help and it just got worse. So I started going to doctors and I went to, first to the GP and she said, okay, you should be okay. I went back to her. She said, no, let me take you to one of my colleagues. So I went to see him. Back to her, she sent me to the hospital. They did a bunch of blood tests. And again, I was in this washing machine of, of torrents, like a hot potato. They did everything from a lumbar puncture to MRI scans. I don't know how many blood tests, uh, chest x-rays, you name it. And my sight started giving me, I had these like little floaters. So something wasn't right then. I kept telling them, something's not right in my eyes. I can feel something wrong. And they'd look through my eyes and, and say, oh, looks fine, no problem. That's not the issue. They tested me for everything from tuberculosis to AIDS to malaria to, they, they tried everything, but they couldn't find out what was wrong. They just kept pumping me full of vitamins and another course of antibiotics. And after the MRI, they, they, they tested the, you know, the spinal fluid and they said that it seems like I just have a very bad infection in my sinuses. And they gave me an antibiotic on the drip and they sent me home. And I didn't get better. And a couple of days later, my eyesight really started to bother me. So I contacted an ophthalmologist and made an appointment, but I had to wait a couple of weeks for that appointment. So I just waited. And then all of a sudden, within two days, my sight totally disappeared. I went totally blind, nothing, black, starless night. Within two days, to nothing, to see nothing. So I quickly contacted the ophthalmologist and said, look, got a problem. He said, get here. My wife, Tamlin, took me to see him. And immediately he diagnosed the Zostra virus that was growing on my retinas. And this was the, the virus that was attacking my light receptor cells. He sent me for some blood tests and he immediately sent me to Hrutsuskir Hospital. There they stuck a needle right through my eye. Um, I, I cringe even thinking about it. It was one of the most excruciating, painful, terrible experiences of my life. And they did a, an optical tap where they suck a bit of juice out from the back of your eye to, to biopsy. And then just when I thought it was over, he stuck another needle in through the eye again to inject something into the back of my eye to replace what he'd taken out and to you know medicate what was going on. And then it was confirmed that this, this virus had attacked my eyes. And the following day, I, I sat in his office with him. Uh, I was in the ward. And I, at this point, couldn't walk. I couldn't do anything. I was absolutely, totally half dead. No, three quarters dead. And he said to me, he says, okay, we've diagnosed what's wrong. Well, the virus is coming right. We will destroy it and you'll be okay in the next couple of weeks. But you're blind. And there's nothing we can do about that. You're going to be blind for the rest of your life. And, uh, yeah, I, I sat quite, quite stunned when I heard that. Did you believe that? I, I didn't. We spent the next couple of months researching any medical breakthroughs, stem cell treatments, gene therapy, anything. Uh, 
we looked at technology, we tried to communicate, we went to see another ophthalmologist, a private one for a, um, a second opinion. But uh, the light receptor cells on, on my retina were destroyed. So just to, to explain how the eye works, your, your eyeball itself is really just a lens. And if you, if you imagine the retina is kind of like a driving screen where you have the framework as well as the screen. And this is right at the back of your eye and this takes the light and converts it and allows you to see. And then behind the, the framework is something called the optical nerve. And this transfers this data and sends it to your brain, to the optical area at the back of your brain. And, and this is what allows you to, to have sight. So the light receptor cells, the rods and cones are that screen that's on the, on the front and that's what was destroyed. So although my eyes are okay, my retinas are okay, my optical nerves are okay, everything there is fine, the light receptor cells were totally destroyed. And this is what causes sight loss in most blind people. Did you ask them or inquire at that point is if they had have treated you early, earlier, figured it out earlier, understood what the problem was, would your sight have been saved? Yes, totally. I, I was dealing not only with the sight loss, with this you know, solitary confinement that I found myself in, but I was also dealing with the fact that, that I, I could barely lift my arms. I could, I could not move. I could not walk. I was virtually paralyzed and, and it was, it was hard. It was really hard. I felt very, very alone, very broken. And I just wanted to die. I lay there in that hospital bed, just wishing that I would close my eyes and it would be over. But then my, my wife Tamlin would be there and she'd hold my hand and I survived and, and I eventually started getting strong. I started getting well enough, but nothing could be done about my sight. It was a big pull to swallow. It was like swallowing a bolt. How old are you at this time? I was 40. It was just before my, my 41st birthday. Three months before I'd proposed to my girlfriend, we had a, a, a wedding pending. And um, I wasn't sure whether she would stay with me. It's quite common for blind people to lose their partner. They, they just struggle to deal with it. So I was, um, I was concerned that, that there was a chance that I'd lose her. And um, yeah, well, today we're married and that didn't happen, thank goodness. So you go from getting the news, feeling like you don't want to live, and then trying to somehow come to grasp with the fact that you are going to live because your health is actually improving. How do you go about now becoming this new person? I mean, you're really, you're changing, in my mind, everything about your life has changed. Well, I sat there in the, in the hospital. I sat up in the hospital bed and the doctor said, you know, you need to have another couple of weeks here. We need to make sure that you're, you're healthy and well. And I said, I'm going home. And he said, you're not ready to go home. So I said, send me home. I will go and bounce off the walls. I'll figure it out. Send me home. I'm going home now, today. Goodbye. And um, he said, okay. And, you know, unfortunately, yeah, in South Africa, we don't have the type of sight loss support that you do have. Canada is actually renowned as being the best in the world, believe it or not, in the States. 
the UK, Ireland, New Zealand, those countries have fantastic support systems here. The, the organizations are geared to, to either teach blind children, so it's school, we can go and learn basic school stuff. I, I don't want to go back to school or college or anything like that. Or you can go and learn how to weave baskets or string beads, that type of thing. So it, it, it was very frustrating for me. I sat trying to break out of the prison cell. And for, for many months, I, I sat lost, losing my identity. And it was almost as if I had, I was still alive, but everything around me had died. And I was trapped in this bubble and, and the world around me was still going on. But I wasn't able to enjoy it or experience it, to see it. What kind of things, sort of describe what kind of things would you miss? Well, it was really difficult with my partner. Uh, I wanted to be able to to see her. She was, when you go through sight loss, it's not only you that has the trauma, but your your family does as well. And um, I wanted to be strong there for her. I wanted to to cook dinner. I wanted to to you know, we'd go to friends for a barbecue, and I'd be sitting on a chair, and, and people talk about you as if you're not there. It, you, you, I, I call myself now an accidental accessibility advocate. And that, that's simply because you have no choice. You, you, you just become, you, you have to stand up for blind people so that people understand more about them. Because up until recently, they didn't have the opportunities to, to work and live a, a full, fun, fruitful, normal life. But now thanks to technology, that is totally possible. But just because you're blind doesn't mean that you're dead. It's sort of misunderstood. People look at you and they don't quite, they don't even know how to think about it because it's something you don't think about unless you have someone that you love or that you deal with that goes through sight loss or in any degree of blindness. You don't really understand it. You don't get a chance to be exposed to it unless you're sort of forced into it. Jim, I was that fool. I, I'd never met another blind person until becoming one myself. So I had absolutely no idea. I was oblivious. I probably would have treated them exactly the same way, just for total lack of understanding, lack of knowledge. But, you know, now the situation happens where I'll go into the bank, we'll walk up to the teller, and then the teller will say to my wife, what can I do for him? Or, or that type of thing. Or the waiter at the restaurant will say, what would he like to eat? I'm like, hello, I'm here, mm-hmm. I can speak, I know what I want to eat, and please talk to me. So it, it, it's totally, it, it's an awareness thing. How do you handle that when that happens, when the waiter comes up? Because because I, I see it as the waiter wouldn't necessarily, like they're not being rude. It's just they, again, do not know how to handle it. They don't understand your capabilities and they don't even understand what handicaps are to the extent of it. So what do you do when they say that? Well, part of what I do now as a professional speaker is to educate corporates and to teach them about accessibility. I have a, a talk called Seeing the Sightless where I show them. Most people don't realize that there are there are 285 million blind people in the world, of which 40 million are totally blind, like me, 100% blind. People don't understand that that's a customer base. So when we're on a website and, and we're trying to buy a camping chair and the little trolley in the top right-hand corner is not labeled properly and it says image rather than checkout, well, guess what? You're not doing business with me or the 285 million other blind people around the world. So so I, I try to educate customers. So I, I go into corporates and I go into schools and I teach them and I say to them, this is what I do. This is what I can do and what I cannot do. And this is how you should treat me. 
And I don't ever expect special treatment. I just expect equal treatment. That's all. I don't, I don't want people to call me differently abled and specially able. I'm not. I'm disabled. I'm blind. That's fine. I'm okay with that. But allow me to still live my dreams and allow me to still do what I want to do despite the challenges of my sight loss. How do you go from sitting there at home trying to get orientated, I imagine, to becoming this advocate? It's really difficult, but uh, Tamlin says that I'm an early adapter. I, I try to learn about technology and, and, and figure out what was there. I discovered that, that Apple, which I, I gagged at the thought of going to an Apple device because I've never even touched one up to site loss, but I discovered that they have an onboard program called voiceover, which is a screen reader that allows you to, to navigate your way around. Um, if you recall in the old days, you never used a mouse on a computer. You'd, you'd float with a, arrow key between icon and icon on the screen and then to select it you'd press enter and it's the same type of thing so when I float from icon to icon whether it be on my iPad or my phone or my, my, my MacBook it tells me exactly what the, the icon under it is so if it's Facebook, Twitter, email, clock, calendar, uh, YouTube, etc and then I select it um, and I, I, for example on my phone I double tap or on my keyboard I'd, I'd press certain keys and it, it selects it so using audio it allows me to see in the way that I did before. It allows me to navigate around the computer. And although I can't sit with a map and look at the map, I can still do pretty much anything thanks to accessible technology. I always say a blind man can do anything that a sighted person is able to, provided the correct accessible technology is in place. Of course, this had me sitting and yearning for more adventure because as soon as I could get onto Google, I started researching things and started realizing that, yes, I can still be a travel and adventure writer as I'd aspired to be. Since I was a little boy, I wanted to write. But guess what? I'm going to be a blind travel and adventure writer. So my story, which I call How I Became the Blind Scooter Guy, um, is not just the story of my Cape Town to Dublin by scooter trip. It's also the story of my fall into the abyss, the oblivion of sight loss and how I climbed out and how I've now become this blind adventurer. And as I walked down this road of blindness, it did get a lot easier. And it has now got to a point where I moved down Blindness Boulevard at a speed almost faster than what the guys on other roads are moving because, hey, what was the thorn poking at my side has now defined me and it has become something special. I have a unique selling point. I'm not just an adventurer. I'm a blind adventurer. I'm not just a, a scooter guy. I'm a blind scooter guy. I, I need to tell you where the, where the scooter guy thing came from because that's quite relevant. My name is Chris and Chris is a real common name as you know, all the Mikes and Daves of this world will know. So I'd call people up and say, hey, it's Chris. And of course they'd say, which Chris? So I'd say, no, Chris the scooter guy. And they oh, oh, Chris the scooter guy. Okay, cool. And, and then I went blind and they started saying, oh, Chris the blind guy. I was like, oh, screw that. That doesn't work for me. So one day someone referred to me as the blind scooter guy. 
and boom, the name was born and it's kind of become who I am now, lovingly known as the blind scooter guy. You're an author and a writer now, and you're writing stories about adventure. Are you going on adventures and writing stories? You know, to, to the first book that I, I wrote was my book titled How I Became the Blind Scooter Guy. And to prep myself and to get myself ready to write, I not only wrote in the book, because firstly, I obviously had to learn how to, to walk. And then I had to learn how to use a computer without eyes. And then I had to write the book, edit the book, typeset the book. It's a one hell of a process. When it, whenever someone thinks that it's easy, well, guess what? It's a thousand times more than you think. And it's a, it's a never-ending uh, roller coaster. And that light at the end of the tunnel is probably a train. But I started writing articles. So I've written for a couple of um, – I've written for Ex- Explorers Connect. I've written for Lighthouse. I've written for Visualize. I've written for Getaway. So, so I've been writing travel articles. Um, Traverse Magazine, I just I had an article in Traverse Magazine now. I – loving writing. I enjoy it. It's storytelling and it's just made me thirsty for more adventures. So I have got three upcoming adventures and um, I'm taking them off one a year for the the next three years. And after that, who knows, but I will not, I will not stop because of sight loss. Have you been to places that you um, have visited on other adventures? In other words, let's say an adventure that you've done. Have you revisited places or any place like that that you've been to before? Absolutely, I have. I, I you know, went to visit the, the elephant farm and it was, I was the first blind visitor there. And, and walking up and touching an elephant was amazing because although I'd seen them before, the way they reacted to me was totally, totally different. I've got a bit of an infatuation with elephants. I think they're the most beautiful creatures they were aware, they knew that I couldn't see. They all came to me and they were so graceful. And so they, they just like, they knew it was, it was an amazing sensation. And can I tell you what, using my four remaining senses, my sense of hearing, smell, taste, and touch, I now can see more clearly and better than I did when I was sighted. The I, I've bungee jumped, I've kayaked, I have mountain climbs, I have uh, ridden my scooter up and down the road with my, my wife holding my elbows behind me. I'm about to import a sidecar and, and one of my adventures will be a, a sidecar trip. When, I think often when we see someone that's disabled, we are unaware of the extent of the disability. We don't know how to sure. approach it. I think people don't know how to approach it. So what is the protocol? I've yet to meet a blind person who doesn't feel totally comfortable answering questions. You know, you might not say, oh, how did you go blind? What happened to you? Whatever, blind. Most people are quite comfortable. Hey, are you okay? Don't ever grab a blind person's hand or their cane because that, that, that cane is, is an extension of your arm. If you grab it, you, you're taking away their sense of touch. So now they, they, they don't have sight or touch. So, so words, speak to them and say, hey, you okay there? Do you need help crossing the road? Or are you all right? Can I do anything for you? Are you looking for something? So just engage in conversation. Ask the question. Absolutely. I, I've yet to meet a disabled person that is not prepared to answer any questions. And we, we like to educate. We like to make it easier so that the next time it's not so much of a challenge. Because every person that I've met, I like to think has a different view of 
blind people now because they, they realize, oh, man, he can do anything. I have a cleaner lady that comes in every couple of weeks and tomorrow is her day. Two weeks ago she worked and I fell over that bucket and mop about five times. <laughs> and, and I had to educate her and I'm hoping tomorrow will be a better day. And, and when she left, I struggled to find things. I had to wait for my wife to get home from work. To, to help me find things because she'd obviously relocated everything. <laughs> so I'm going to make a point tomorrow. For the first hour, she's not picking up a rag, a feather dust, a mop, nothing. She's going to walk around with me and I'm going to speak to her and I'm going to show her why it's important. What is your next adventure? Do you feel like a tongue twister? I call it a multifaceted Mediterranean mobility meander. So the famous explorer, the, the blind explorer, James Holman, who he was the blind adventurer in the 19th century, in the late 19th century, did some crazy things. He swam in mineral springs above Aix-en-Provence in, in France, and he climbed Mount Vesuvius, and he traveled and navigated his way basically around the Mediterranean, around the Tyrrhenian Sea, and he visited islands, and he did all sorts of crazy things. So I'm going to go and recreate what he did. I'm not able to climb Mount Vesuvius because it's close, so I'm going to climb Mount Etna, an active volcano in Sicily. And I'm going to experience everything between Catania and Toulouse using my four senses to navigate. So my wife is coming along. She is only allowed to push the button on the camera and take pictures and say, jump if a car is about to hit me or anything like that. We, we plan to have as many forms of mobility investigated as possible because well, it makes for an interesting story. <laughs> Whether it's sea kayaking, a tandem bicycle, scooter with a sidecar, running, hiking, walking, swimming, you know, horseback, donkey cart, as many forms as possible. And, and not only mobility, I want to taste as many local flavors in each of the areas so that I can pick up the local differences. And obviously, you know, the smell, when you're in France, you, you're walking through a lavender field, it's going to smell very different to being in a, a lemon grove in Sicily. And uh, then sounds, I want to experience local music and know the difference. When the church bell rings in this town compared to that town, I want to know the difference, whereas most people wouldn't have a clue. Oh, yeah, I'll know the tone of the church bell in Pisa compared to the church bell in Albi in France. Because there's a difference. It's, it's a, every single church bell's got its own specific tone. And yeah, uh, to to eat, you know, Italy and France, we're better than to to feast on the smorgasbord of flavors uh, from limon granata and limoncello in southern Italy to to pizzas in Napoli along the the Amalfi coast to cheeses and uh, seafood in Sardinia and then going into Tuscany and eating a steak Florentine and then going to the Cote d'Azur and eating Parisian foods that's like beef bourguignon and, and local wines in, in Provence, going through to the Pyrenees Mountains, all my senses will be excited to the extreme. That's, that's the intention. Chris, thank you very much for coming on and, and talking with us and telling your story. It's been an absolute pleasure. It feels like we've been talking for 10 minutes, but I suppose it's been me talking for uh, an hour and you talking for 10 minutes. <laughs> 
I've been speaking with Christopher Venter, and you can find out more about what he does and what he will be doing, which I assume is going to be a whole bunch too, um, at his website, www.blindscooterguy.com. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. I just want to remind you that this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. that about wraps up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks of course to our producer elizabeth martin and to you the listener thank you very much for listening and being a a part of what we're doing here remember you can download all of our episodes for free just drop by the website www.adventureriderradio.com they're all there to listen to as well as show notes and starting january of this year we've started doing transcripts so if there's something you've listened to in the show and you're wondering what was said or maybe something was mentioned just drop by and check out the transcripts we've put quite a bit of work into those so they're a real good resource and they're available on the website in with the show notes so just drop by and have a look we also have our other show that comes out once a month arr raw roundtable discussions about motorcycle travel and a bunch of other things. There's a group of us on there that, that talk each month, and February's just went out, so if you haven't seen it yet, you can also drop by the website. There's a link on there for Raw. And all of our podcasts, you can get anywhere you can find podcasts. So any sort of podcast app, it's it's everywhere. Just go and download it anywhere you want, and uh, we really appreciate it. Hey, if you like what we're doing, you want to help things out, you can help support the show by dropping by our website, click on the support button. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you. Anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention on the show. So um, drop by and check out we have to offer we'd really appreciate it if you'd look at the the patron uh link or patreon link the patreon uh website is set up so that you can do monthly support you can put any amount a dollar five dollar twenty dollars whatever you want to do and uh, that's really appreciated because we can sort of count on that each month and it helps us produce the show and spend more time producing stories and looking for stories and, and all that sort of stuff and less time doing other things anyway that's it my name is jim martin this is adventure rider radio thanks for listening see you next week mm-hmm.